This week on a lively experiment, the General Assembly comes out of hibernation to tackle a daunting short-term budget crisis. But what will lawmakers do about next year's budget? And small businesses are getting back to business under Phase 2 restrictions. We talk with one salon owner about the challenges of operating in the COVID-19 era. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by... For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen-White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, attorney and legal analyst Lou Polner, Brown University political science professor Wendy Schiller, and political contributor Don Roach. Welcome in, everybody. I'm Jim Hummel. We appreciate you spending part of your weekend with us. Well, if ever there was a rainy day, this is it. Or so the thinking of legislative leaders as they call their members back to the statehouse after three months to try to close out this year's budget gap. They are using part of that rainy day fund and scooping the quasi-publics again in an effort to make up for hundreds of millions in red ink. Uh, Wendy, let me begin with you. This is nothing new budget deficits, but this is just daunting this year. My concern is, though, for the outlying years. It's, it's, it's clear they're going to have to have to get federal money one way or the other, though, right? Well, yeah. And I mean, the states are all constrained in similar ways in, in, in this country, unlike the federal government, where you really ha- you're supposed to have a balanced budget. You're supposed to find a way uh, at the end of the fiscal year to balance the budget. I think very few states are going to be able to do that technically. So this is, presents a massive public pro- policy problem. We'll be paying for this crisis for a decade. How we pay for it, that's going to be the real question for legislators and governors across the country. Yeah, Lou, we, again, we've talked about this for years. I wonder about the structural change going on. You know, we talked about 10 years ago, during the 12 years ago during the Great Recession, regionalization, you know, economy of scale, and I'm not hearing any of that. Now, I realize the governor's got the the crisis right here on her mind, but I don't hear any, uh, you know, she talked about it a couple of months ago about reforming state government. It just seems to be get through the crisis at this point. And that's exactly what's going to happen again and again and again in the state of Rhode Island. There is no cure. It's only stopgap. It's putting your thumb in the dike that's leaking. And uh, we're going to have a systemic problem for years and years and years. And our legislature doesn't have the will, the determination to tackle it head on for the benefit of our children and grandchildren. And that's the unfortunate thing, because the rest of the country is learning that we can do stuff from home and, 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 and be functional remotely, uh, which is a beautiful thing. And we're going to find that going forward, that a lot of people are going to learn and, and, and develop their better practices as a result of this pandemic. Unfortunately, we can't say the same about the legislature. Don, the House Republicans uh, have wanted to get back, do some oversight, and the speakers kind of brushed them off. I wonder whether that would have made any difference, at least having some legislative. The governor's been, I think the governor's gotten pretty good reviews for what she's done, but there's been no legislative oversight, and some people are concerned about that. Yeah, I think they're they're right to be concerned about uh, oversight. You know, I've seen a lot of what the governor has done. She's done a lot of what the president has done in terms of just making moves to try to uh, stem the di- the tide of this pandemic. Um, I, I'm generally someone who's more strategic than tactical in terms of making systemic changes. But in this time, 
I'm really thinking about Rhode Islanders who don't have a job and they had a job three months ago. To me, that's the problem we have to solve. And I do want to tackle structural changes. But right now, I want to make sure people have a job. And that's the main thing the legislature and the governor should be focused on. Wendy, as, the, uh, as we go ahead and look toward next year, I had been talking to the governor potentially about state furloughs and layoffs, and they said, well, you know, that's kind of a drop in the bucket. Now we found out if they had done that five or ten weeks ago, that could at least have made a little bit of a chip in the budget. Other states have done that, but the governor was very resistant on doing that, and I, and I wonder why, what your thinking is on that. Well, I think we're a small state, and I think that the state government does employ a lot of people, and the economy was taking a huge hit. And there's also a lot of pass-through money coming from the federal government and a lot of COVID relief. This is what's an interesting point, of course, that Lou and Don are making as well. With the COVID money that's coming from the federal government, it's supposed to be used for things that are COVID-related. But is that going to be helpful to use for stemming, uh, you know, avoiding layoffs or supplementing state budgets for employment or even employment works programs, which Republicans don't like to do? Uh, and Democrats don't like to do because unions don't like it typically. But we may see, Don, in response to you, that the government says we got to put people back to work. We have to spend money actually to employ people, just as FDR did in the New Deal to, uh, to ward off a depression. So I think there's a lot of, when you say oversight, I think that's totally true. I think the vagaries of what's COVID related are what's helping, frankly, a lot of states use some of that federal money to stave off even worse budget disasters. There's a lot of anger and jealousies, uh, as I witnessed, simmering uh, in the state of Rhode Island that so many businesses have closed, so many people are unemployed, but every single state worker until this point in time has a safe income and a safe job, uh, whether they're actively working at their job or not as a result of the pandemic. Uh, I think it's been unfair that the state employees, and I don't mean unfair, I wish everybody was gainfully employed, but I think that they should have had to share in the burden uh, over the last couple of months, and they haven't had to do that yet. I think that's, ahead, a, that's, a, that's an interesting point in terms of, I, I know you uh, uh, moved away from the word unfair. To me, though, what I, what I feel is really unfair is what we were talking about earlier, just the lack of a plan. I mean, before the pandemic, the Rhode Island economy wasn't, you know, uh, as good as other states um, in, in a time where the economy nationally has been doing, doing very well. And so we have systemic and structural issues now, and Ramondo hasn't been able to solve those over her tenure, and I'm not in this legislature either, so I don't know why we expect her and the legislature to solve it. But what I want to say is we have to solve this problem. And John, can I just jump in for one second? Go ahead. It's not factually correct to say that our economy wasn't on par with the rest of the country. We had extraordinarily low unemployment, historically low unemployment. Maybe our unemployment was 4.2% or something and the country was 3.9%. But to say that we had not kept up or caught up to a lot of other states before the pandemic is just not correct. So, I mean, I just think, I think you're right. We have to figure out something going forward. And Lou's making an excellent point about the gross unfairness of the way this pandemic has hit certain industries and certain jobs and not others. I mean, I think that's just factually true also. But I don't think it's fair to say that Gina Raimondo hadn't taken the state back to where it needed to be. Now she's got to do it again, just as Donald Trump has to do it again. And that's an enormous challenge. You know, what's unfortunate. We were... uh, sorry, hang on, Don, Don, go ahead and answer and then Lou will get to you. Go ahead, Don. 
Yeah, I, I still thought that the uh, unemployment numbers in Rhode Island, and I could be wrong here, were lower than the national average, which to me says we're not doing as good as the majority of other states. We might be doing great historically for Rhode Island, just like the numbers, like the unemployment numbers for African Americans were at a historic low, but still not on par with the national average. To me, I, I want Rhode Island to be ahead of the game. And just if our bar is, let's just be close to the national average, I, I don't think that's going to cut it. Well, and that was my that was my point. Well, three tenths three tenths of a percentage point is not very far away, but I'll I'll drop it. You know, I, I'm going to agree with both of you, uh, but I think the point, the better point that Don was making. All right, I take that back. Not a better point, a good point, uh, is that you've never ever felt that the Rhode Island economy was percolating, that we were on the cusp of something great and wonderful. Uh, I shared Don's. Uh, sentiment that, yeah, we were getting by, which is a low bar, and that's not a good bar. And uh, the reality is, is that as, as an economy, uh, regardless of how good the numbers have been, you never felt like we were just at the precipice of going big time with, with the state of Rhode Island. And I don't think that's ever going to change, uh, at least not in the foreseeable future. You know, it's like uh, we make the point that uh, things have to change. Well, with Black Lives Matter, yeah, things have to change. And you only hope and pray uh, that they do. Uh, but there's no guarantees. And uh, I kind of make that equation uh, to our economy and just the general malaise in the state of Rhode Island that we have to do better, not that we should do better. Don, let me, that's a great, uh, that's a great segue into it. Don, you and I spoke shortly after the big protest in downtown Providence. And I wonder, as you watch what's going on, you've certainly seen protests. We had Kobe Dennis on last week talking about all the protests he's seen. Whether you think this is different and whether the momentum's going to continue to change. We've seen it nationally and wonder whether that's going to happen locally too. Yeah, it definitely feels different uh, than other times before. Um, you know, I uh, my job is uh, working for a large corporation in Boston, even though I'm hunkered down in my basement uh, right now. Um, I do think that people are taking this issue seriously in a way that they haven't done before. I've had a number of conversations with uh, many of my white friends and uh, colleagues about what's going on. You know, how am I doing? How have things affected me? And really, um, it's more, I've been saying, welcome to the conversation. It's nice to have you here. <laughs> and that um, things can change, but don't, don't live in guilt. Just partner with people, get to know people, and, uh, you know, be brave enough to make a change. And so I think I want to make that point. And then the other point that I also want to make is um, – you can't overcome hate with more hate and we have to overcome this hate with love and that um, we have so many great uh, police officers uh, who are out there doing their jobs, putting their lives on the line every single day. And we need to celebrate them and we need to tell those stories just like we need to tell the stories of injustice as it occurs. Amen. Well, I, I'd like to ask, how do you reconcile the position, the, the position of the National Republican Party on issues like racism, uh, Charlottesville, President Trump's response to that, uh, the fact, you know, that 
You have, I mean, you have Tim Scott who's being a phenomenal leader, African-American Senator from South Carolina on policing reform. And that's terrific. He seems to have pushed his colleagues in a direction that they actually seem to be willing to go. People like John Thune of South Dakota, John Cornyn of Texas. But how do you reconcile? Do you think, especially Don, do you think that the Republican Party is finally having a sort of reckoning, a moment of awakening that says, you know, you can't live in 2020 in America and not be really active or trying hard to address a lot of these issues? I, I wish I could speak to the National Party, but uh, Professor Schiller, I will tell you that this past couple of weeks, uh, I've been a card-carrying Republican for 20 plus years, and our response to this had me questioning whether I wanted to continue in the party. And I've met with the, the RIGOP uh, the last couple of weeks. We've had some conversations about uh, our response, uh, collective response to to these protests and what's going on. And what I'm saying is that we can't be tone deaf now. Like if we're tone deaf now, I'm out. And if I'm out, so many other people are going to be out as well because they don't, they're much farther from where, where I am than, than, than where I am. And, um, you know, I think I heard a quote from Mitch McConnell about, you know, Barack Obama's presidency was, was a reparation for, uh, for slavery. And I'm just like, come on, man, come on. And, you know, we've got to go to communities. We have to talk to folks, see what, what their issues are. And we have to say, did you know that you're also a Republican and talk to them about the Republican policies that will help them that are much better than democratic policies. But if we continue to talk about things that while they may sound good in theory, um, just are completely tone deaf, you know, we deserve to lose and we deserve to have Democrats who have made all kinds of promises, but have done nothing. That's just how I feel about it. Lou, one Lou, one aspect of this is there's been a lot of talk, renewed talk about the law enforcement officers' bill of rights here in Rhode Island. Some of the some of the myths about it, but also some of the very big concerns. Because over the last 45 years or 50 years, it really hasn't changed much. Do you think this is going to be the catalyst? I know Harold Metz has been has uh, submitted some legislation. Give me the legal perspective on maybe some of the tweaks that could be done for it. And of course, it's a political issue, obviously, but also you know, a, a law enforcement issue. Well, first, let me say, if America and the Republican Party doesn't get on board at this point in time, they never will. I think that the, uh, the George Floyd death was so vivid and it indelibly etches itself into the brain of anybody who has watched that film. And I don't imagine there is anybody who hasn't seen that film where more than any other time in my life, there's a reckoning. And every white person in America has to recognize and see exactly what the black community has been dealing with forever and ever. And I'm gratified that finally there is an awakening. And uh, to Don's point, I can only hope that not just the Democratic Party, not the Republican Party, but every party leans in on this and makes a change. Back to your question, Jim. Uh, yeah, the, the Law Enforcement uh, Bill of Rights is, uh, is a powerful, powerful tool for the uh, police officers nationwide, and especially here in the state of Rhode Island, where they're afforded a great many uh, opportunities to escape 
penalties and punishment. Uh, Peter Nerona, as it turns uh, just this morning uh, in the paper in the Projo, is the article where he wants all of the communities, uh, cities and towns now to report out any complaints of excessive force or serious injury. Uh, whereas in the past, it used to just be that they had to report deaths at the hands of a police officer. Uh, so I think that's a big step. Now there'll be a better uh, database within which to uh, review all these matters. And I do think there'll be changes. I think there'll be systemic changes. But as I say that, I want to be very, very cautious. Do not paint a broad brush across the law enforcement community, because as Don pointed out before, the vast majority of them are there to be part of our community and protect our community. And it's in their hearts to do good work. And I think just really quickly adding to that, the evidence is look at, we had 9,000 or 7,000 people in Rhode Island just a couple of year, weeks ago and the state police and the local police and police from Cranston and Warwick all came to help and we had no serious injuries. And, uh, you know, it was phenomenal. That job was phenomenal that they did to allow people to peacefully protest and engage in their First Amendment rights without any major difficulties. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do and they should be totally commended for that. So, and I, and President Trump signed a bill. Some people said it doesn't go too far, but it's a first step. You know, a national database of misconduct reporting for police and asking localities to report that information, that's a first step. And, you know, you have to give credit where credit is due for making some progress as quickly as they, they have there. Don, you want the last word? Uh, yeah, I, I just think that we're in a moment where real change can finally happen. And it's, it's really up to us to see if we, if we seize that moment. And I'm cautiously optimistic, but the emphasis is on cautiously, for sure. All right. We are about three weeks into phase two reopenings. Perhaps you've gotten your hair cut or you've gone out to a restaurant, maybe to uh, sit indoors finally. Uh, we wanted to catch up with a local business owner. This has been so difficult for so many people who have had to be closed. So I interviewed earlier this week, Angela Manzo Magnolia. She owns Magnolia Salon in Cranston. Many of you may know it. And she talked a lot about kind of, I hate to use the term the new normal, but getting used to uh, masks and doing other things. Um, here's a little bit of my interview with her. Working in these masks is really difficult too on a daily basis for 10, 12 hours a day that we were working. So that kind of has its own uh, issues. Have you gotten used to that at all? Day one, I was really put out by it, I have to be honest. But you know, by now you just kind of accept it as what it is. One of the choices that we did make, which was a big, big uh, decision to make, was that we weren't going to blow dry hair within the first month of opening. You weren't? We were not, and we still have not blow-dried hair, um, but we will start to do that as soon as phase three opens up because um, we felt, you know, based on the data and based on the science and all of that, that we were gonna just follow what they said um, with, you know, diff droplets being in the air and blow-drying and, you know, your droplet could end up over there somewhere. So uh, we decided let's, let's just play it safe for now. A lot of us, like, will double book. So, you know, you might apply a color and then while that person's processing, do something else. And that's how, you know, that's how we stay alive financially. Now we're only working with one person at a time. So yes, we, we're doing half the capacity, but we've added days and we've added hours. And, um, you know, 
that's the best that we can do. We just, we're just happy to be back. And that's the attitude of a lot of the small business owners. I'm curious from you guys, hands up if you've gone to a restaurant indoors. Anybody gone yet? No? Well, you know, Three you got to make, huh? Got to make reservations, got to do all that. And that's really going to be, if they open it, will they come back? Clearly, there's been a pent up demand for the salons. And, and Angela said you can imagine how it was that first week. But I wonder as we get back, Wendy, this is something, again, it feeds right into the economy, getting back sales tax, restaurant tax, hospitality tax. It's going to be a pretty tough summer because phase three, it looks like, is not going to come until the end of the month. Right. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And one of them is employment versus, you know, sort of a restaurant, uh, the owner making money. So uh, there's some restaurants that have been doing pretty well on takeout. You don't have as much alcohol sales. So of course, you lose money there, but you're not your staff isn't coming back. So you may still be in business because you're selling your takeout. You've got the kitchen staff, but your wait staff is not there. And those are jobs. And those are people who are looking for jobs and there's no jobs to be had there. So I think that is that plus the tourism problem. You know, I think it's going to be an extraordinarily difficult summer. You hope the federal government will extend unemployment and extend the subsidy at least until the fall for COVID-related problems, because I think it's going to be a lifeline for just thousands and thousands of people in Rhode Island. But the, the contrarian's view to that is, or the opposite view, I've heard from a lot of small business owners who have said that extra $600 is keeping some workers on the on the sidelines. Now, if that's a short view because I think ultimately if you want your job, you're going to go back. But there's some people who said, I make more sitting at home. So maybe not the vast majority of people, but Lou, that's been a problem for some businesses. It's been a huge problem, especially in the hospitality interest, uh, industry. Uh, the restaurants, uh, they, I, I've talked to many owners who are just at a loss because their employees, you're right, Jim, uh, they might make four or $500 a week and maybe in cash as they uh, 10 uh, tables of bartend, but the reality is, is they're making $1,000 a week to stay home. And I think the general feeling amongst the workers is those jobs are still going to be there when the federal unemployment stimulus uh, ends and uh, they'll, they'll go back to work at that time. But this is their chance to milk the government, and I think they're doing it in, in mass numbers. Well, uh, just to jump in really quickly, I have people in my own family, my extended family, who've lost their jobs in the restaurant industry. And I, I know a lot of people have lost their jobs and they all want to go back to work. So I don't know these mythical people that you're claiming want to sit at home. I think people are terrified of unemployment because they don't know when it will end and they don't know what the future holds. So I just don't know these people that are, I know people who are unemployed who are actively looking for jobs right now. So, but, but so let's be I, honest. I don't know these people. But in the hospitality industry, why would someone on unemployment take or give up a thousand dollar a week paycheck to go back to a restaurant where people are not going in and sitting down, they're doing takeout. So those who say, yes, I want my job back, will go back to their job and they're gonna realize they're not making any money because nobody's coming in to uh, support and patronize the restaurant. And they're smacking themselves in the head saying, I could be home making $1,000 a week. Right, that's a compelling reason to try to get us to phase three sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Yeah, and you sorry. know what, the, I'm sorry, go ahead, Jim. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead, Don. The ridiculousness. Go ahead, Don. Go ahead, Don. I was just gonna say, you know, I'm, I'm honestly just heartbroken. Just, just hearing this, the story of the salon, it just made me think of just all the workers who 
have had to change their lives. And uh, I was talking to a woman again last night at the GOP meeting who, who was telling me her daughter, her business is closed. She's got to figure out how to reinvent herself. And um, that's the next level of this civil unrest. If we don't solve this problem in a few months, we're going to have even more people uh, kind of protesting and more in the streets. And um, I, we've got to solve that problem. And it just, it terrifies me. And uh, from the standpoint of what can we do? You know, myself, I'm an, I'm an office worker. I've been able to work from home the last few months, but there are many, many millions of people who haven't been able to do that. You know, is there something I can do to help? Is there something that large corporations that haven't been as affected, what can they do to help? We've seen a lot of people give uh, donations and, and money. And um, I just, um, I'm really worried about, you know, the salons and the barbershops and the restaurants. And I just want Raimondo to, to have a conversation on how can we help these folks. Just takeout isn't going to do it because a lot of these folks work on tips, but We've got to have a plan, and I know many of Rhode Islanders who are like me, who are, are, are office workers, work from home. We're willing to help. We just need we need a plan to help. All right, uh, we only have uh, about three and a half minutes left. Let's do outrages, Wendy. Let's go to you first. Well, I I think the number one to, to me, of course, the the loss of life at the hands of a police officer, particularly in Atlanta, with somebody who falls asleep drunk in their car, and you have to acknowledge as a, as a white person that if that man were white the cops probably either would have taken him home he said he lived a couple blocks away or let him go or waited till he sobered up and that just the whole incident wouldn't have happened he wouldn't have been shot to death in the back so that's one outrage the second outrage is that you know whether you believe covid can spread or not putting 19,000 people in an inside arena in Tulsa Oklahoma this weekend is irresponsible on the part of the Trump campaign have an outdoor rally uh, look, it's the First Amendment. You want to have a rally, you're the President of the United States, do it outside. So at least you slightly mitigate the possibility that you're infecting thousands of people who will then go infect more thousands of people. And these are the most vulnerable in our society, the elderly people with uh, existing conditions. So, you know, try to take some responsibility and empathy for the people who could get sick and die from this, even if you believe it's overblown. And so that's just super distressing to me. All right, Lou, what do you have this week? Well, I do want to give a quick shout out to the legislature, who I'm not always a big fan of, but they have just, uh, uh, they're on their way to sending a bill to the governor, which will ban ghost guns, which are the guns that people can make at home with their 3D computer. Uh, I think that's an excellent uh, gun control move, and I applaud them for that. My outrage is the stunning similarity between the priesthood and law enforcement. Uh, as we all know, unfortunately and tragically, a priest will molest a child and they will move that priest to another parish without giving anyone a heads up about the past behavior. Apparently, cops have been doing the same thing. Law enforcement, they have a bad seed. They have an officer who has hurt somebody, maybe seriously so enough to the point where they're fired from their law enforcement job and all they have to do is go to another jurisdiction, another community, and uh, they can be rehired by another agency who has no information on the background and the history of this particular officer. The stunning similarity between the priesthood and law enforcement is shocking, and that definitely has to come to an end. All right, Don, I'm sorry we're shorting you. You've got about 30 seconds for an outrage or kudo. What do you have? Okay, uh, outrage of the week is uh, 
Black Lives Matter does not mean that all lives don't matter. Black Lives Matter means Black Lives Matter too. Also, we should not defund the police, okay? We need folks out there who are willing to put their lives on the line for us every day, and our police officers do that. Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter too. It's not an oxymoron. It's not, they're not mutually exclusive. Let's get it right, people. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Amen to that. Don and Wendy and Lou, thank you so much. I wish we had another half hour because there's a half a dozen topics I didn't get to. But you know what? We'll come back next week. And I hope you'll join us next week as a lively experiment continues. Have a great weekend, everybody. Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.